Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Creedle. This is What a Week, and I am joined, as always, by my friend Andrew Pettiburn, who is fresh returned to Texas from the Good News Conference, which I think is taking place in Phoenix. But uh, Andrew, tell us about what you did at the Good News Conference and uh, the very exciting things happening there. Yeah, I'm just back from a whirlwind trip to Phoenix. I don't know if I ever told you, Zach, that we used to live in Phoenix. My, my son was born there. You know, you have so, mentioned that. I, I totally forgot until you reminded me, but you have mentioned that before. Yeah, but this is that our son was born there in 2010. This was my first time getting back to Phoenix since 2011. So it's been like a really long time. And man, I love it out there. It is just beautiful. Uh, I love the weather. And uh, it, yeah, the Good News Conference, the first one was last year in Florida. And this year they're having it in Arizona. And it was just a, a really good time. And I got to give a talk on evangelization and film. I got to talk about the Vatican film list and kind of give a little preview of stuff that I'm working on in one of my book projects, which is uh, called Popcorn with the Pope. And it's a book about the Vatican film list from 1995. And it was just great to hear some great speakers and, um, you know, uh, it, you know, very big crowd, like a thousand people came to this conference and it's uh, it was very encouraging and a lot of fun just to hang out with people that I enjoy but yeah, I'm back now and just kind of, I don't know about you, Zach, but anytime I travel, even a short trip, I just kind of just gets me out of whack, like as far as like what I eat and how I sleep and all that stuff. So I'm just kind of like getting back to normal today. Oh, totally. No, I think it was two weeks ago that I had that really quick. I flew out to Los Angeles uh, on a Monday afternoon and flew back on a Tuesday morning. And it's from Chicago. That's roughly a four hour flight. So that was, that definitely put me way out of whack. I, I, I feel your pain in that regard. Yeah. Um, yeah, but talk to me more time. about the, the the Vatican film list. Is that something that is is still updated, or is it was it only done in 1995 and never since? It's one of the weirdest things, and this is part of what why we wanted to write this book. These two colleagues and I, I actually joined the project late, but I knew about the project like in you know when it was coming when it was coming together. Um, Michael Ward and David Baird are the other authors with me, and um, it's uh, yeah the Vatican film list from 1995. It was to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the first public showing of a of a motion picture, and um, it was put out by the I believe it's the Pontifical Commission for Social Communications, and it was the weirdest thing. They just issued this document that says some important films, and it's divided up into three categories: art, religion, and values. It's 45 movies. And um, about 25, 26 of them are European productions in foreign languages. Very few of them are American, but there are a few. Um, but they're all great. And so I am working on 11 of the films plus the introduction for this book project. And um, a lot of people just don't even know about this. They don't know about this list at all. In fact, quick anecdote, I wrote to George Weigel, who is the great biographer of John Paul II, because I thought he might have some insight about who the members of this commission were, like how this list came about, because he really had his finger on his pulse in the 90s about what was going on in mm -hmm. Rome. Still does, I guess. Um, and he admitted to me he had never heard of the list. George no Weigel. kidding. Yeah. So wow. it's wild. I mean, you can Google it, and it's on like IMDb and stuff like that. It'll show you all the movies on the list, and you can find out what they are. And the wonderful thing is nowadays, they're all accessible. In 1995, a lot of them, you couldn't, you couldn't even find them. Like you could... Maybe if you had like a specialty video store in your town or something, like they would have cer certain ones. I mean, some of them are popular, like The Wizard of Oz and It's a Wonderful Life, but some of them are really obscure and they're all great, all worthwhile. I'm looking at the list now. There's a Wikipedia page, Vatican's mm -hmm. List of Films. Yep. The, uh, there's a very short description before the list. It says, in 1995, on the occasion of the 100th, 100th anniversary of cinema, the Vatican compiled a list of 45, quote, great films. And as you said, divided into three categories, religion, values, and art. 
So let me just read a little bit of a sample here. Religion, the mission, the passion of Joan of Arc, Therese, a man for all seasons, Ben-Hur, Andrei Rublev, Babette's Feast. There's a bunch more. Yep. Values, Chariots of Fire, Gandhi, It's a Wonderful Life, Schindler's List, The Tree of Wooden Clogs, Bicycle Thieves, a bunch more. Yep. And then uh, some, some from the art category. 2001, A Space Odyssey, Little Women, Citizen Kane, The Wizard of Oz. That's an interesting choice. Yep. Modern Times from 1936, Eight and a Half, 1963, and several more. So, wow. So have you seen every single one on this list, Andrew? I have to admit, I have not seen, there are three or four of them that I have not seen because they're just ones I hadn't already seen and they weren't ones that were assigned to me to write about for the book. But I have seen most of them. And um, some of the ones that I've been writing about for the book are ones I had not seen before. And I'm really grateful that I was assigned them because they're just terrific. One of them is Carl Theodore Dreyer's great film, Ordet, O-R-D-E-T, my goodness, is that a masterpiece? I mean, that is wow. just one of the greatest things I have ever seen, and I had not seen it. It's crazy. But I've now written a chapter for a big publication about it. I'm thrilled about it. What is, and so. it's, it's Ordet, not Orday? It's not a French nope. thing? Ordet. No, it's what Ordet. Is, uh, it's a Danish what, film. Okay. What's it about? It's about this family, uh, th these two families, actually, of Lutherans in Denmark. And one of them is kind of a, a sort of like a liberal world-oriented family of Lutherans. And the other one is this very strict um, kind of puritanical uh, family of Lutherans. And uh, in the one family, uh, there, there are three brothers, and the three brothers kind of represent three aspects of the father's personality. And one of the brothers has this sort of Christ complex, like he, he thinks mm -hmm. he's Jesus. And uh, anyway, but he actually just, thinks he is the second coming of the Messiah. He thinks, he thinks he's Jesus. Yeah. He's gone wow. off to study theology and, um, the the local pastor comes by he's brand new and he visits the family and he asks the father like what you know what did this to him how did he get like this and the father says it was uh it was reading kierkegaard that did this to him so which is it's all interesting it's sort of like got all these like theological and philosophical things yeah. going on but it also is just just knocks your socks off with stuff about miracles and prayer and just um i mean the last scene of that movie is just incredible you just you're not you just can't even believe it how great wow. it is so and ordet by the way the word ordet in danish means the word so i actually used it as an example in the talk that i just gave about how what we should be looking for in great films are in a sense like images that are infused with logos that are word you know like we want we don't want just images we want sort of word word based images and yes. a movie like ordet totally totally nails that Wow. I'm looking forward to watching this. Is this, do you know if this is available to stream anywhere? Did you have to find it in some obscure uh, DVD, you know, order catalog? No, it's pretty available. It's, I, okay. I think I watched it on Criterion, but uh, okay. I, you should be able to find it somewhere. It's a, it's a pretty well-known movie. Looks like Roger Ebert gave the film a four out of four, which is not, not super common for Ebert. Yeah. I've never heard of anyone who doesn't love the movie. I, I mean, wow. like it's, it's a very Christian movie, but it is, it's one of those that everyone points to as just having this huge influence on the, the films that would come later and um, just the impact of the, the themes and the characters and the cinematography and everything about it. Amazing. Well, I look forward to watching it. I'm surprised that George Weigel did not know about this list. Do you, do, do you know or does that make you think that maybe Pope St. John Paul II didn't even know about it? 
He did know about it. Um, I'm not, I don't think he had anything to do with it though. I don't think like, I mean, I don't think he, I don't think they asked him what movies he wanted on the list. And in that correspondence with George, he told me that he, he didn't really, he didn't really think that JP two was a huge film guy. Hmm. Um, which or a a playwright, huh? Yeah. It surprised me a little. I mean, he told me that, that JP two's idea of, of like a cozy evening in was reading some philosophy of like, uh, Emmanuel Levinas, which I thought was very cool and endearing. But um, I also kind of, it surprised me a little just because one, Poland is a great cinematic country. I mean, they, they, they have a great tradition of great cinema. And mm-hmm. also JP2 was a playwright and, a, and an artist and involved in it. So I don't know, that's kind of interesting. That's actually a question I want to dig into at some point a little bit more. But I do know, and George told me this, that he loved the, that at the end of his life, he loved the movie Life is Beautiful, the Roberto Benigni film about mm-hmm. the Holocaust which is very cool. And that, if there ever was a part two of the list, I would definitely want that, that film on the list for sure. Yeah. Makes sense. You've, you've shared with me about that one before. I have not seen life is beautiful, but I want to. It's great. Uh, this is actually relevant. I wanted to talk to you before we dive into our misinformation today, wanted to talk to you about the movie Rushmore. Mm. Sally and I just watched this. This is a Wes Anderson film for those who have not heard of it. And it is about, I mean, it's in some ways, I guess, sort of a coming of age film, but it's about a, a misplaced romance in which a 15 year old private school uh, student falls in love with a teacher, uh, I think a first grade teacher at that same school. And there are all sort of all sorts of, um, you know, problems that that come along with that and uh, in tribulation. And <laughs> Bill Murray plays a sort of mentor to this young boy who then ends up falling in love with the same teacher. So obviously that creates a bunch of problems. And so we really liked the film. Uh, I was disappointed, though, that there was not a watch with me on this one, Andrew. For those who don't know and have not heard us talk about this, Andrew has a YouTube series called Watch With Me, hosted by the World on Fire Institute, where Andrew's employed, in which he, he dissects some of these masterpieces and goes into the deep meaning behind them. There is one of those for the Royal Tenenbaums, another Wes Anderson film. There is not one for Rushmore. So I was disappointed, Andrew, because I finished it and my wife and I were talking about it. We're like, we like it a lot. There was, there was a lot in there. Not totally sure what it's saying. And so, so I wanted to, to chat with you about, about that and your impression of Rushmore because I know you are definitely a Rushmore fan. I am a Rushmore fan. I think Royal Tenenbaums is, is just a more profound movie. And that's why it made sense for me to do that one early on in, on the, the watch with me. There's just so much going on there that you can sort of tease out in terms of like theology, philosophy, all kinds of stuff like that. Rushmore is a great, as you said, like a great coming of age film in the sort of American tradition of movies like Harold and Maude from the seventies and then John Hughes movies from the eighties and stuff like that. Um, it's, uh, it's just, yeah, beautiful movie about a very quirky boy. Um, it's also a movie that I think Wes Anderson, along with Owen Wilson, the co-writer of the film that they were, um, reflecting on their own experience growing up, going to private schools. And I was thinking um, this has to be at least semi-autobiographical, right? Yeah, I don't know for sure. I mean, I, I can kind of imagine Wes Anderson being a little bit like like um, Max um, in Rushmore. But, you know, I don't know for sure. Um, but yeah, both, but the, the Wilsons, Luke and Owen Wilson, and actually their other brother, Andrew Wilson, they all went to St. Mark's School here in Dallas, which is one of the most sort of prestigious that. private wow. schools. Yeah, and then Wes Anderson went to St. John's School in Houston, and actually some of Rushmore is shot there at St. John's School. Um, uh, 
so yeah, it's it's just a beautiful movie about a boy just trying to find his way in the world. You know, it touches on the loss and mourning stuff that we were talking about a few weeks ago. Like, you know, Max doesn't have his mother. He has his old father who's a barber and just kind of, you know, a kindly old guy. But Max is very much on his own to kind of create his world. And he throws himself into kind of everything related to Rushmore, except for excellence in academics, in a sense, you know, like he's sort of the king of Rushmore other than actually being good at school. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the funniest parts of the movie is this montage very early on where it shows all of Max's roles in all these clubs. And he's, you know, the founder of the the chess club and he's the founder of the, the uh, skeet shooting club. And the, the chairman of this club and the president of that and vice president of this. It's, it's, I mean, there's probably like 15 different clubs that he's running yeah. in some capacity <laughs> and he does, he, I, he gets like yeah. straight C's and D's in school. Yeah. I, my wife and I like to say the line to each other a lot that he, that he says, uh, based on his experience in the Latin club, he says, I saved Latin. What did you ever do? Um, because they're trying to get rid of Latin and he tries to save it. So, um, yeah, man, there's so many lines like that, that are just a part of the, like my, experience of the world like all of wes anderson's movies but rushmore has a special place in my heart and you know it's funny zach because when i first saw rushmore i was a young man and i really identified with the max character but nowadays when i watch it frankly i identify more with the bill murray character not the infidelity part or whatever not that part but just the just the sense of like you know gosh like what is life all about once you get to a certain place you know like when you're just sort of doing the routine of taking your kids to school and, you know, doing your job and trying to make a career for yourself and all these things. Um, so I just love Bill Murray's character in that movie. It's, it's so memorable. Yeah. Now that you mentioned it, I wonder if there is a way in which sort of Wes Anderson positions those two characters and, and, and Owen who wrote, wrote the screenplay with Wes as sort of uh, mirror images of each other. Like they're, and, and you, you can tell that because they both have this attraction to Miss um, Cross, the teacher, but Max is the young naive super idealistic go-getter the world is his oyster and bill murray is a very wealthy man who sort of made the world his oyster for so long but now is at the end of that having achieved everything that he set out to do and he looks around and the things that actually matter like his family around him are are crumbling he has no relationship to speak to speak up with his sons his his marriage is falling apart etc uh so maybe there is something to that that i hadn't even picked up on until you just said that, Andrew, but I like that interpretation. Yeah. And they're fascinated with each other too. You know, yes. um, there's at one point, I think Bill Murray's character says like, um, what is it? He says something like, what makes you tick Max or something like that? Like he's just sort of like, he just, he's just really fascinated with him. And likewise, Max with, uh, with Bill Murray's character. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a wonderful movie. That, that last scene, you know, when they, when they uh, dance to Ooh La La at the school, at the school dance, it's just a kind of beautiful, yeah, you know, beautiful coming of age movie ending. It's so memorable. Love it. Yeah, I thought it was very good. So uh, I will. Uh, I mean, spoiling this, but I'll make that my recommendation for the week because that was the first time I'd seen Rushmore, and I thought it was really good. So I'm glad that uh, glad that you could talk me through some of those things, Andrew. And if you're making season two of Watch with Me, I definitely nominate Rushmore to be included in the mix. It was very good. I may. We'll see. I'm glad you like it. Yeah. Anything else we should talk about before we dive into misinformation for this week? I am ready with my selections for the week for you. Cool. If you're ready. I am ready. Let's go. Okay. All right. Here we go with number one, misinformation. Uh, from the Financial Times, if true. In a new twist, art vandals protest and nobody notices. 
it, it continues. At the Tate Modern Gallery in London on Saturday, two men in double-breasted suits protesting the ousting of former Prime Minister Liz Truss pulled apart the exhibition My Bed by award-winning avant-garde artist Tracy Eamon. Joseph Reese Williamson and Richard Grantham pulled off the sheets and gathered all the nearby paraphernalia making up the exhibit, then walked out with, 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 and then walked out with them shouting, bring back Liz and don't let the global bankers take over the Tories. So in a new okay. twist, art vandals protest and nobody notices. I, I have to say I'm skeptical because I don't know if anyone would protest Liz Truss's resignation. This is, this is interesting, but, but. We'll see. I'll reserve judgment until the well, final two. Yeah. Okay. So that's the first one. Nobody, nobody noticed that particular uh, act of vandalism in an art museum. Okay. Number two. Well, this this okay. does, of course. Th I mean, that part's actually believable because so much of what passes for art in art museums today is not actually that. It's just as we've talked about before. It's just kitsch with no real vision, no real creativity. So that part to me is believable. But uh, yeah, we'll see. Okay. We'll see. All right. Number two from Fox News, if true. Uh, model Heidi Klum, unrecognizable in elaborate giant worm costume at her New York City Halloween bash. It continues, Heidi Klum revealed her highly anticipated Halloween costume on Monday night, shocking and terrifying Instagram users as a realistic looking gigantic worm. The former model who throws extravagant Halloween bashes every year is known for her love of epic costumes. She held her 21st annual Halloween party on New York City's Lower East Side. Okay. This is like like an earthworm, a, a tapeworm, a ringworm. What kind of worm are we talking about here? If true, we're talking about a giant worm, like a giant, a giant like a night earthworm. Crawler. Yeah, like a giant yeah. giant night crawler. Okay. Um, yeah. So All Heidi right. Klum dressed like a worm, maybe. All right, and last one. If true, from the New York Post, the spookiest medical conditions explained. This article describes three spooky medical conditions just in time for Halloween. The first one is called walking dead syndrome, also called Cotard syndrome, where um, patients believe that they have lost organs, blood, or body parts, or that they have lost their soul, or that they are dead. The second syndrome is called Alice in Wonderland syndrome, where people are unable to judge the correct size of their body parts. And the third one is called foreign accent syndrome, a speech disorder that causes a sudden change in spoken words, causing the sufferer to be perceived as speaking with a foreign accent, according to the University of Texas at the Collier Center in Dallas. So three spooky medical conditions, walking dead syndrome, Alice in Wonderland syndrome, and foreign accent syndrome. Those are your three choices. Zach, what do you think? All right. I think the Heidi Klum worm story is true. That is my, I'm going to eliminate the easy one off the bat. I think that is true. Uh, it is true. Yes. Okay. Good job. Um, I thought that one was pretty easy to get, but I wanted to share that one because it just popped up on something. I was looking for weird news stories and my goodness. If Did our, you see our the picture? Yes. Our listeners really need to see this picture. <laughs> it really is astonishing. I love it. She. She has quite a quite a history of doing this. Every year she throws this party and her costumes are always incredible. I mean, they are I'm looking like, this up right now. Heidi Klum worm costume. Check it out. You're not going to believe it. I mean, it's something like out of a movie. What? Yeah. You see it? <laughs> yes. It's just oh my goodness. Face. Like she is. A, she is a giant worm on the ground. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. What? That's very 
that's pretty gross, actually. It really is. It really is disturbing. Oh my goodness. So, I hope our listeners go check it out. There, there's no there's no way. I mean, if you if you were to say who is that, I first of all, I don't really know what Heidi Klum looks like, but all you see is eyes and and a mouth. Yep. Oh my goodness. And and she's wearing it looks like these like uh, the, those um those colored contact lenses. So she has yellow eyes. This is really gross. It's it is so weird. And I mean, how I don't understand how that would be enjoyable. At, you know, as part of a party, this is a Halloween party. Um, I mean, she would want to get out of that quickly to actually enjoy herself with her guests. But yes, I don't know. Maybe not. Like Maybe her husband dressed up as a fisherman. So this is a she's a fishing worm, presumably. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Remarkable. Crazy. Okay. Well, there's that. Learn something new every day. Yep, that's true. Okay. So then I'm left with the last two. Okay. I'm leaning towards the first one being false, the last one being true. And here's why. I know the the walking dead syndrome sounds a bit fake, but the other two I'm pretty sure are true because I've heard of Alice in Wonderland syndrome. Uh, I know that it is for, for sure true. And I've heard of the, the foreign language or the foreign accent syndrome. I think what's, what's the, what's the medical term for that? Like the, the sort of disruption of speech is it ataxia or something? But I, whatever it is, I've know. heard of I've heard of stroke victims recovering and then having this you know, this foreign accent. I heard in particular about one um, American who woke up with a Cockney accent and was like, "What in the world? Where did you get your British Cockney accent?" And uh, yeah, it was some some uh, syndrome relating to how her brain had been injured in the stroke. Uh, so I again had not heard of the Walking Dead syndrome. Uh, but you know, having thought you've lost an organ or something, I, you know, there's these, there's these, um, like phantom limb syndromes and there's, uh, there's various, there's a disorder where you like a body dysmorphia thing where you think you're missing a leg or you want to be missing a leg. So it's not too far removed from this walking dead syndrome. So my guess is that that is true. Item number three and item number one. Yeah. I mean, it's it's believable, except for the fact that I I really don't think that these people would be protesting a Liz Trust resignation. So I think that's my guess. Number one is false. Number three is true. How to do? You nailed it. You got it exactly right, Zach. Yeah, those those three syndromes are real, and you're right about the last one, the foreign accent syndrome. It says here that FAS foreign accent syndrome is most often caused by brain damage due to a stroke or traumatic oh. brain injury. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So what a wild what a wild thing. Super but, wild. Yeah, but all three of those things are true. Yeah, I just completely made up the the first one about the um, the protest. I just I've been contemplating this, and actually, uh, I will. Uh, my recommendation for today later on has to do with uh, some of these vandalisms or these acts of um, activism that have been going on, uh, so called activism in in art museums where people are throwing things on paintings and sticking themselves to paintings and that sort of thing. But it just occurred to me how funny it would be if somebody protested something like Tracy Eamon's bed, which um, Roger Scruton used to talk about Tracy Eamon's bed all the time. He pointed to this as like what everything that was wrong with modern art, you know, yes, precisely because everyone knows it's a joke. Everyone, no one thinks it's art. No one thinks it's beautiful. You know? So if somebody just like took it away, like nobody would even notice probably, mm -hmm. you know, um, so I just, I love, I just, it popped into my head, the image of these two men in double breasted suits, um, you know, protesting. And yeah, I, I was thinking, you know, the first one I gave the, the false name, Joseph Reese Williamson, cause I was thinking of Jacob Reese Moss, uh, Mog, the, um, member of parliament who always wears double breasted suits. Yep, and yep. he was a big Liz Truss guy. Supporter, um, yeah. So, uh, 
anyway, I thought maybe there might be one or two, uh, one or two people like that who, who think it's worth like standing up for their old pal Liz. I'm sure there are. I think the thing is, uh, I don't think that the Liz Truss supporters would be insane enough to stage these, you know, these attacks on items in an art museum, even if the bed is not itself art, which we can agree it's not. Yeah. Uh, so I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want you to spoil anything for listeners, but is your recommendation for the week to not throw cans of tomato soup on <laughs> priceless Monet's? Is that your recommendation? Well, that is definitely my personal recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> and the, and the article that I'm going to share, uh, is, uh, yeah, it, it definitely thinks that that's a dumb thing to do. Okay, good. Sounds good. Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that when we get to the recommendation section. Let's move on to our close read. And this week, actually, I think the piece is very interesting, and it is by a friend of the podcast who's been on once before. Her name is Kat Rosenfield. And Kat, if listeners may remember, uh, from I think it was earlier this year, Kat wrote a book called No One Will Miss Her, and it's a thriller. Uh, I read it and thought, I'd love to get Kat on the podcast. I also followed her writing on Unheard. She wrote a lot on Unheard, I think still does. Uh, but all over the internet had written, read her things that she had written elsewhere. And just, she struck me as a very interesting thinker, a very clear writer, and someone who is not afraid to be heterodox, as she talks about in this piece that we have today. So the close read topic for today, or the subject is the article in National Review called Why I Keep Getting Mistaken for a Conservative, appeared in the October 27th issue, I think. Uh, Yeah, October 27th. Or no, sorry, the November 7th issue, but it appeared on online on October 27th. And the, uh, the sub-lead here is, I'm a lifelong liberal, but my team now thinks I'm the enemy. Now, um, this piece is fairly long, but not too long. You can, you can easily read it in a sitting, uh, a short sitting, you know, 10, 15 minutes. And in it, Kat talks about how she really is a classical liberal, kind of the old school, uh, old school liberal who thinks that uh, people can disagree and still be friends. Uh, and who's fundamentally optimistic about the you know, use of uh, government to sustain human flourishing, et cetera. Uh, she talks about how this has changed and the entire dynamics of the country have moved towards polarization and tribalization and how that's a bad thing, but she actually ends on a fairly optimistic note and we can, we can talk about that. Um, but she starts out with this funny story in which uh, she's writing along, uh, writing in the internet various places, sounding quite quite a bit like a conservative, at least at the very least, departing from these sort of, um, you know, standard boilerplate leftist talking points. And so she gets approached by Rich Lowry of National Review, who I think is the editor in chief. Um, yeah. And he takes her to lunch in New York somewhere. Uh, and they're, they're, they're sitting there, they're talking, they go through their whole lunch. He doesn't bring up, you know, anything about writing for National Review or whatever. And so it's, it's sort of at the point where it's getting a little bit awkward. And then he says, basically, so I was hoping to talk to you about writing for National Review, but apparently you're a liberal. <laughs> and so uh, she uses that to uh, talk about, obviously, she did end up writing for National Review. I don't know if she'll keep writing for National Review, but I hope she does because she's always a very interesting voice. But she uses that discussion to talk about this broader career phenomenon that she has experienced in the last several years in which people start to think that she's a conservative simply because she's departing from these leftist talking points. Let me read a few a few things that sort of uh, maybe capture where Kat is ideologically, and then a few more things to show sort of what she's arguing for in this piece. So here's what she says. I need to first explain what kind of liberal I am and always have been, the free speech and bleeding heart variety. 
As a kid born in the early 1980s, now a millennial in early middle age, I understood conservatives through the lens of the culture wars long before I knew anything about politics. Which is to say, with apologies to my audience, that I saw them as the uptight control freaks trying to ruin everyone's good time. Ah yes, conservatives, the ones who wanted to ban, scold, and censor all the fun out of everything. They were humorless, heartless, joyless, sexless, except for their bizarre obsession with policing what kind of sex everyone was having in the privacy of his own home. And she goes on to talk about these sort of um, 1990s uh, culture war things uh, and how she, when she came of age, it was, it was in that milieu. She's, she's the bleeding heart liberal and on the other side of the aisle are the sort of uh, the prudish conservatives, if you will. Uh, she talks about the, the satanic panic, for example, and talks about you know, policing uh, uh, high school dances and things like that and just how, how the conservatives were just a bunch of prudes. So she says, yes, I was a liberal, but um, I just wasn't the type of liberal for whom other people's politics were a deal breaker. And as an example, when I met my husband in 2006, uh, you know, it was more shocking. It, it, it was not shocking to me that he voted for Bush. That was fine with me. It was really shocking that he was a Red Sox fan. That was potentially a deal breaker, you know, but not quite because she ended up marrying him. But as a, as a sort of cheeky example of how the politics didn't don't really and didn't really matter to her. That's what he talks about. Now, I think where this gets interesting is the next part of this article where she she sort of traces the evolution of uh, the sort of ideological dividing line. And she says in the 90s, it was all about the conservative culture wars, like where where are our kids getting bombarded by profanity and by sex on TV, et cetera. And 20 years later, you know, from say 1990 to 2010 or 1995 to 2015, the dividing line becomes much different. It's no longer about, uh, you know, mere sex, but now it's about, uh, you know, uh, we might call sort of Foucaultian power ideologies, um, uh, deconstructionist stuff, you know, gender theory, uh, critical race theory, all of these things, very different lines in the culture war than she grew up with in the 90s. And so she uses Breaking Bad, one of my, actually my very favorite show, as a great example of this. And she says, for example, by the time Breaking Bad hits the scene in the, you know, just before 2010, 2012 era, she says it became a, an ideological, an ideologically divisive show, but not because it was morally repugnant. It certainly was that, you know, there's drug dealing throughout and there's, there's open swear words on TV and there's sexual storylines. But she says that wasn't the issue. The issue is that the show actually um, was uh, misogynistic and it made, um, it made people of color into the bad guys. And so it sort of just, just got caught up in this ridiculous uh, outrage, she says, about toxic masculinity, male privilege, mediocre white men, misogyny, so much so that uh, Anna Gunn, who plays the lead, the lead woman in the show, had to pen a New York Times op-ed where she basically argues that people hate her character because they're all sexist. And so, um, so Kat basically says, here, here are the dividing lines now. This is very different from the dividing lines that I grew up in. And as I've watched these things happen, and as I've watched us uh, slide towards something that is much more illiberal than liberal, uh, take, for example, she mentions the Charlie Hebdo massacre. She mentions the Me Too movement and how some people wanted to sort of just get rid of due process entirely because of the accusations that were uh, being um, uh, being thrown at people in Me Too in the Me Too movement movement, uh, you know the COVID crisis and the uh, the public health authorities' attempts to uh, usurp a lot of authority and uh, exercise their authority. She says basically these things have made me be heterodox, and so I am no I'm not afraid at all to voice uh, voice opinions that are contrary to the sort of received um, ideological majority on my side. 
but when I, whenever I do those things, I become a charlatan uh, to my own people. They push me out or no longer want to identify with me. And simply because I'm not afraid to, um, to not toe the line, people on the other side, like Rich Lowry, like many, you know, Greg Gutfeld, whose show she's, she's appeared on on Fox News, think of me as one of their tribe because I'm willing to say, hey, you know, hey, CDC, that's not exactly what the data in this study here says. Or, hey, maybe we should actually give this person due process and make sure that they have uh, full protection under the law, uh, equal protection under the law, just as everyone else in their position should. So um, very interesting perspective, I think, here. In the end, because I've been talking here for a while, Andrew would love to hear your, your take on this. In the end, Kat says, basically, I'm very concerned about this toxicity that we have. I'm very concerned that we are seeing things along a strictly tribal lens so that you're either in my tribe or not my tribe. And that tribal identity, most concerningly, she says, takes priority and takes precedence over policy. So it's no longer, I disagree with this way that you want to solve this problem. It's just that I disagree with you because you are in the other tribe. And your bona fides for remaining in that tribe are basically how well, how clearly, how fully do you align yourself to the sort of ideological received priors of that tribe? She says, here's the problem, but the potential solution is that the more of us who say, yeah, I'm not actually totally in line with those priors, I actually want to talk about solutions, and I want us to be able to disagree and still be friends, the more of us who do that will find ourselves uh, without a tribe, tribally unaffiliated, uh, and that will leave us to then have lunch with each other and get to know each other, get to know our neighbors, find common ground, et cetera. So she ends it on a fairly optimistic note. One I'm not totally sure is warranted by the evidence, and we can get into that, Andrew. But that is basically the piece. That's her argument in it. And that is how a, uh, a self-described bleeding heart liberal writer ends up writing for National Review because she's concerned about, about this problem. Uh, I agree with a lot of what she says here, Andrew, but I'm wondering what you think. Yeah, Zach, I, that was a really helpful summary. I thought, and I, I enjoyed the piece, and I also enjoyed Kat's um, appearance on your show before. I thought you two had a really good conversation, and um, I really like her openness to just want to talk to whoever wants to talk with her. And you know, she talks about in the article how um, if anybody invites her to do anything, she says yes. Like you know, if, if somebody invites her to have lunch, she says yes. I think that's a great that's a great way to be in some respects. Or if a you know, conservative Catholic podcaster like me invites her on, she's like, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, why not? I mean, yeah. what, what's the worst that could happen? I think that's great. I think I think that kind of like fearlessness is really great, really important, and just one's desire to just think for oneself and not to worry about being pigeonholed as, oh gosh, she talked to so-and-so, well, that must mean this or whatever. I think that's really cool. We need more people who are just brave like that, who don't care. Um, but a couple of a couple of thoughts on this. Um, two, two kind of different strains of thought that I want to lay out real quick. The first is, and maybe this sound, you know, a couple of years ago, they were calling guys like me dads all the time, like people who just sort of have, or maybe you too, Zach, like, you know, who just sort of say, well, that's just not the way the world works. Or, oh, you know, you'll, you'll mature one day and you'll see things differently. And, you know, that's like, you know, the, the, the young idealists like to say, oh, don't be such a dad or whatever. But there is something to just the basic, the basic truth that you do become more conservative in certain respects, like the more like, as you get older and as you have greater stakes in society, you just do, right? I mean, we're all conservative about what we love and what we want to see carried forward. I mean, that's mm -hmm. just the way that it is. So I detect a little bit of that in what Kat is, in what Kat is saying. I mean, 
it, you know, it's not, it's not a big deal, right? To say when I was younger, I used to be very progressive, very liberal. And, you know, now I'm more open to lots of different ideas. And, you know, I, I, I have my stakes in the ground in all kinds of ways that I didn't used to in the past. Um, you know, uh, I, I think, you know, I think we probably just need to recognize that there's more of that going on in some of these, because she's not the only one who's had this kind of, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, sort of come to light. Um, those sorts of things happen. And and yet, you know, people who have had, you know, it, it, maybe you feel this way, even as, a, as a, a former Protestant who's now a Catholic, I feel this way sometimes, right? Like who we were is still in a sense, like who we are. Like, we don't want to just like, like, you know, we don't want to just be, be so, have such a hard break with our past that we just, you know, just throw it all in the trash can, right? So I totally get that there's a part of of somebody who used to be you know, a, a bleeding heart liberal on every single issue or whatever, who wants to say, Hey, look, I, I still feel like I am that I am, I am still that person. And, you know, I don't really like, I don't like being told that I have to say I'm not, you know? So, um, and no, it, it happened. It so happens that Kat really is still a liberal on lots of issues. And, and so that's, that's totally fine, but good on her for just sort of saying like, this is who I was. I've changed in certain ways. I haven't changed in other, in other ways. And, um, you know, that's just part of getting older and, and um, making your way through the world. So that's one strain that I was thinking. The second one, though, I think is is more significant. And I think, you know, it, it, maybe this is more the direction that that uh, you, you'll have some more thoughts about this in this direction, too. But um, this whole idea of like that liberals used to be one thing and are now something else is very significant to me. Um, I certainly remember growing up in the 90s. It seemed to me that being a liberal, being a progressive person was about was about freedom. It was about not wanting to be told what to do. It was about wanting, you know, essentially to just sort of, you know, do your thing. It wasn't necessarily like libertarianism per se, but I mean, certainly with regard to a lot, with a lot of issues, it was a kind of freedom to express oneself, to explore, to, you know, to all that kind of thing. It was exactly not being doctrinaire about, you know, you know, you have to, you, you know, you have to go this way, you have to go that way or something, which seems to be, more or less the way the, you know, that seemed, you know, you use the words heterodox and orthodox, like that seemed, that's the orthodoxy now, like on, on the left and the right has a version of it too, to be sure. Um, but, you know, as I was, as I was reading this article, um, I was thinking about something I told you, I told you that, well, last week, actually, I recommended the new album by Bjork, um, mm-hmm. the, the singer Bjork. And I ended up writing up a review of that. And it's going to be published this weekend, I think, but there's a lot, in this new Bjork album, and Bjork is now in her 50s, um, but she's somebody who was identified as a real avant-garde person. Certainly nobody would have thought she was any kind of a conservative or anything like that. But her album is full of stuff that I identify as, as having a lot of, um, that's definitely not towing the orthodox line of today's progressivism. And yeah. I just want to share with you one one line that I think relates to um, what Kat is talking about in her piece. Um, let me just find it in here. In one of sure. her... In one of her songs, um, let me just find it real quick. Um, yeah, in one of her songs called um, Atopos, I don't know what that means, but that's the, the name of the first song on the album. Um, she says, she's talking about this issue of um, being connected to people who are different from her. And she had, she had actually said in an interview that she didn't believe in cancel culture per se, because especially with younger males, she thinks that um, and she's the the mother of a son. And she says that mm. young men have to have an opportunity to evolve and grow and learn. So she's kind of, she doesn't quite, she's, she endorsed me too, but she doesn't quite toe the line on kind of all of the, all of the stuff about canceling men and stuff like that. 
But then there's this song, Atopos, where she says, she says this line. She says, to name only the flaws are excuses not to connect. And then she continues, mm. to insist on absolute justice at all times, it blocks connection. You know, um, which I thought that was a really cool line. To insist on absolute justice at all times, it blocks connection. You know, and I think this is something that Kat's getting at. Like, there's something more important about human relationships than figuring out up front what side somebody is on. Like, um, the the personal is way more important than the the sort of tribal, uh, the tribal allegiance or the tri- or the kind of party alliance. So, anyway, those are some thoughts that I had. Um, you know, both the kind of well, you grow up and you do get a little more conservative, and then also like maybe there's this kind of old, like kind of slightly older fashioned way of being a liberal that is now, funnily enough, seeming very conservative. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I have to say when I read this piece, I definitely, a lot of it resonates with Kat because she sort of came to political, a lot of what Kat says resonates with me because she came to political consciousness in the 1990s when we were in the midst of this culture war, as you just said, ideological purity tests and all of that. And so to her, the conservatives were the bad guys, but not, they weren't evil. They were just prudes, right? They were the people who wanted to chaperone the high school thing and make sure they police what their kids were listening to and all that stuff. Uh, I think those are good things, by the way. I'd be one of the conservative prudes <laughs> if, if uh, you know, 1995, Kat Rosenfield was evaluating me. Um, but as someone growing up in a conservative household in the 1990s, to me, the Democrats were the bad guys. And the Democrats were these sort of like, you know, avant-garde sort of social experimenteers who were sort of uh, the, the love wins types and uh, wanted free love uh, and, you know, were open to recreational rampant drug abuse and uh, had visions of a great society that involved lots of government spending and heavy taxation on American households so that they couldn't spend money on what they want to spend money on. And those are, those are certainly dividing lines, as Kat points out. Um, but those are dividing lines over policy. So the questions there are, hey, what should the government's role in marriage be? How much should your marginal tax rate for your family be? Uh, how much of a heavy hand should government have in preventing obscenity period in society? How much uh, of a heavy hand should they have in, in promoting virtue within your child's classroom? Those are all policy questions. Um, those aren't questions that are sort of foundational to human identity, human existence, to the very essence of what we value as a, as a thriving uh, economy, as a thriving democratic uh, republic. But now I think the questions that we do disagree on are actually about those more, those deeper, more fundamental questions. And it becomes much harder in that context to, to look at the neighbor and say, this person actually still wills my good. And maybe a concrete example that perhaps is overstated, but, but I mean, I don't think so. I was talking with a friend recently who has, uh, who has friends. So these are then friends of my friend, uh, who are teachers in Southern California public school districts. And my friend tells me that her friends are really having a hard time because they are now participating in a system and they're seeing it happen where children in their school district are receiving uh, gender transition hormones. Uh, what's the gender affirming hormones, I guess is the new sort of, uh, the new, the new speak for this. Uh, and they're doing so, uh, the school district is administering these, but the teachers are not allowed to tell the parents that this, this is happening because the children have not given their permission, despite having obviously underdeveloped frontal lobes, the children have not given their permission to the school district officials to notify the parents. 
So in the old days, I think the question was, you know, the, the, the school battles that you question or that, that you would fight over are, hey, should this book about, I don't know, Heather Has Two Moms, I think was one of the like the big sort of 19, 1990s like lightning rod books, right? Should Heather, have two, Heather Has Two Moms, should that book be in my child's library period? That was the question then. Now the question is, hey, should my school district be required to notify me before they administer cross-sex hormones to my child? Uh, the first of those questions is like, hey, we, you know, th this is actually a good policy question about how heavy handed government should be here about the involvement of the school board. Uh, we have clear positions on this, but this is not actually a question that goes directly to you trying to fundamentally alter my child's conception of their self-identity. The second is exactly that in that latter category that's much more drastic. Uh, the stakes are much, much higher. I mean, if, you know, if my, if my, if my, uh, daughter or son comes home from school and says, hey, dad, we read this book called Heather Has Two Moms in class. I'd be like, wow, well, now we need to talk about that. And I need to make sure that you have sort of a right understanding of what's happening here. Uh, if my child comes home one day and I find out that without my knowledge for two years, they've been given cross-sex hormones by their school nurse and I have been, been notified, that's a completely different scenario, right? And so like, that's the level of, that's the level of disagreement that divides us now across the aisle. And the, the polls have just become so, so different. Now, um, you know, I think part of that is tribalization, but part of that is just the increased radicalization of, from my vantage point, honestly, Andrew, it looks like one side. I will certainly grant that there is, there is radicalization happening on the right as well. But I feel like I'm really, honestly, like a, a fairly middle of the road to sort of right center kind of person, Andrew, and my, on most of my policy positions. And from where I sit, it just seems like the other side of the aisle is just moving further and further and further away. Now, there are exceptions, and those people are people like Kat Rosenfield, who's like, uh, you know, Kat, Kat Rosenfield is sort of who I think of as one of the good liberals. And that's why I can have her on my podcast, and we can have a really fair discussion about things. I, I knew when I had her on, she was not a conservative. I even mentioned that on the show and said, Kat, I know you're not a conservative. You're a self-identified progressive liberal. But what do you think about obscenity laws? And we had a constructive discussion about that. And what do you think about how we sort of inculcate these virtues in our kids? And we had a productive discussion about that. I couldn't have a productive discussion about those things with, with many, many people who, who are self-identified liberals today, precisely because they're not liberals. They've just gone off in like this, this fantasy land where they're engaging in, uh, in ridiculous uh, policy positions, ridiculous advocacy, um, and demonizing people like me who... Uh, you know, they basically want to ban from polite existence because I, I, I hold fundamentally different views about my family and about the, the human person and human identity, et cetera. So I, so I think that Kat is, I think that Kat is certainly right uh, on a lot of what she says. And I really admire people like her for being able to say it. I mean, she's one, I think Tulsi Gabbard, Glenn Greenwald, Matt Taibbi, maybe Michael Tracy, uh, like these people are classical liberals who have recognized how much the, the sort of liberal establishment, if we can call it that, has just departed from those classical liberal norms. And these people are pretty committed to staying there. They value free speech. They value a, uh, a commitment to you know, honesty and transparency in government. They're uh, clear-eyed, I think, about the sort of costs of big government, but also very optimistic about you know, how to make it happen. Uh, and they're skeptical of the social conservatives like me. And that's fine. That's fine. But it's a very different thing than what, than what we find now. And I think that's what concerns me. So yeah, Kat is, uh, I'm glad that Kat is optimistic and, you know, sort of ends her essay with this sort of let's have lunch comment, but I'm not, not so sure that I agree with that optimism. I wish I could, I really do. But, um, but I, I don't think I do. 
Yeah, I think it, that's a little bit naive too. But you know, it's maybe it's worth a try, I suppose. And especially kind of like among people you actually know, it's worth a try. Um, you know, social media kind of obscures a lot of this because we we feel like we know or we're connected to all kinds of people that we that we really aren't. You know, um, I, I feel like I've fallen into this trap myself that I kind of I probably should just focus on making progress with people I actually have relationships with rather than sort of worrying about how to find connection points with people I'm, I I really don't share my life with. Um, Yeah. You know, I think that this shift that we, that we've gone through is, um, you know, somewhere along the line, I I don't know where exactly, but you know, these issues that are so dear to progressives became um, just completely conflated with, um, you know, I mean, these issues are, they, 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 there is no wiggle room for them. I mean, they are, they are as important as, you know, civil rights for African-Americans or something like that. I mean, these just aren't things where you can negotiate. There aren't things that can be kind of, you know, kind of wrestled with in these sort of give and take of politics. Um, and this is something that is, I, I honestly think is going to hurt the the people who are except, except in some places is probably going to hurt people who are running for office. Um, you know, whereas say in the nineties, Bill Clinton figured, figured out the magic. I mean, he, he was like, he really found a way to kind of speak a more conservative language while always kind of winking at the base and like, you know, kind of figuring out these things and ended up being wildly popular. And, you know, even though despite his shortcomings as a, as a person, his moral shortcomings, you know, fairly good, a fairly good president in certain, in certain respects. I don't know, maybe we could argue about that, but, you know, I just don't see that kind of, you know, I mean, you know, a democratic president stood up and said the era of big government is over. He signed the defense of marriage act. Um, you know, he, you know, welfare reform was a huge thing that he did with the Republican Congress. Um, you know, I just don't, I don't see anything like that happening from a democratic leader anymore. Right. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, I can, I can just imagine, being frustrated about that if you're a certain type of a certain type of progressive who thinks you know hey maybe it'd be a better strategy to kind of figure out ways that we can cooperate and not personalize things so much not demonize people who don't agree with us and maybe we can achieve more that way but you know i don't know i don't know if that's the camp that that cat is in i think some of the older the older liberals who are feel, feel a little bit out of place with the modern democratic party and the modern progressive movement are a little bit more like that but um but yeah, cat, people like Cat are interesting. Just um, you know, people who are you know around my age, our age, who are like coming into their mature years and sort of trying to figure out what their what their feelings are, what their positions are, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with everything that you said. I think that the sort of you know cross partisan, across the aisle co- collaboration and cooperation that we've seen in you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, even 15 years ago, we just don't see it now. Um, and I don't think we will again for a long, long time and maybe ever, which is, is the scary part here. I mean, Kat seems to be more optimistic than I am, uh, on this point. I also want to clarify one thing, Andrew, I was just thinking about my comments on extremism, um, a bit ago and just said from my vantage point, it seems like it's mostly the radicalization is mostly on the left. I, I want to be clear eyed and, and sort of clear uh, and clearly articulate that I recognize there's a radicalization problem on the right as well. Uh, and I, I obviously condemn radicalization in the strongest terms possible. Um, from my vantage point, again, I sort of see myself sitting like center right. I don't see any 
radicals on my side, period. You know, even if, if these like self self-identified far right folks, I, I don't see them as on my side. Like I actually hold zero policy positions in common with them whatsoever uh, and have radically different views from them about human identity and human dignity, uh, regardless of creed, sex, um, et, you know, et cetera, uh, race, obviously. Um, and so I, I want to be clear about that. I think the difference though, is that only one, in, in a, on only one side is this radicalization find a voice at the highest levels of government, right? And uh, there are certainly far right people in America. Again, I condemn those far right ideas uh, again in the strongest terms. I mean, the fact that there are neo Nazis in America is just crazy to me. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it boggles the mind to think about that. And obviously, I condemn that ideology in the strongest terms, and everyone should. But there are no neo Nazis in Congress. Right. Uh, however, on the other hand, um, this, these far left radical ideas that do want to sort of reconstruct the entire uh, idea of the human person and what the human person is and how we relate to one another. Those people are, are like sitting members of Congress right now, right? They're, um, they're whispering in the ear of the president of the United States so that he parrots their talking points line by line when he, when he gives his speeches. Um, and that, that stuff's scary to me. Uh, not in the sense that I'm quaking my boots, but I guess, uh, I just don't see a, a way back from that. And I think that's where, that's where the problem lies. So yeah. again, I'm glad that there are people like, uh, cat who say, wait, hold on a second. I think we went a little too far here. This is not the liberal, uh, ideology that I grew up with. Let's go back to that. Yeah. I would, I would welcome that because, uh, people like cat, I love talking with and I can learn from them and change my mind on things as well. I mean, maybe if I had a conversation with cat, I would come around to, for example, uh, you know, drug reform or, you know, certain, uh, you know, I don't know, reforming capital punishment or whatever. We, we actually probably have common, a lot of common ground there on that specific one, but I'm sure she would change her mind on a variety of positions uh, because we have at least uh, some common ground to work from um, compared to, for example, you know, half of Congress. Uh, well, that's, that's, that's overstating it a bit, but a lot of Congress members with whom I just don't have that common ground because uh, they're, they're so far, uh, they're so far extreme. Yeah. And you know, a lot of the things that she, there's one place in the article where she rattles off a few things where, you know, you know, I believe, you know, this, 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 and this, and honestly, I don't really think there was anything in that list other than maybe LGBTQ kind of yeah. advocacy stuff that there wasn't really anything in her list that I think wouldn't find a place in kind of the more populist movement of the Republican Party or of the right nowadays. Yes, that's exactly which is, right. Which is one more point that I wanted to make that I forgot I forgot to make before that I don't think Kat is like this, but I personally know people who are, who... Um, couldn't stand George W. Bush, who couldn't stand the old the old Republican Party at all. I mean, that's just not not at all their thing. And to this day is not their thing. I mean, yep. they're like, heck no, I would never have voted for George W. Bush. That guy, you know, that whole the neocon stuff, the, you know, tax cuts for the rich and blah, you know, I'm not interested. I agree in any with of that. those things, by the way. <laughs> I agree with the with right, the liberal right. critique of those positions. Yeah, I can't exactly. stand the neocons. But there are people, there are people like this who, who like would consider themselves that they, that they were liberals because back in that, yeah. in that era, they had, they wanted nothing to do with any of that. But you know right. what? Things have kind of flipped around and now they're like Trump voters. Um, I mean, yeah. I know people like this, right? Yeah. Very, very, very much so. I was thinking about um, when I, I was just out in Arizona, as we talked about before, and there were tons of political ads on the TV that I just was flipping around on the, the hotel. Um, and there were ads for the, this woman who's running for governor, Carrie Lake. She's like that. You know, she's a former Democrat, 
definitely not into the neocon stuff at all and about the trumpiest politician on the on the scene today Mm -hmm. so there is something that i mean cat doesn't get into this but there definitely is something about this kind of like reorientation or shifting around of of kind of what you know what used to be versus what is yeah i agree i mean this is the realignment uh and we're seeing it happen in real time it's playing out right in front of us this is the realignment um uh, to, to your to your last point there, one other thing I wanted to mention is Kat gets into this too, that basically the dynamics of the day are that if you do not identify, if you do not pass the ideological purity test of your tribe, then you get ostracized and kicked out. And I think that's largely true. Uh, but I also think that that tendency to sort of kick people out of the tribe for failing to meet ideological purity is actually more common on the left than on the right. So Kat has obviously been sort of ostracized um, and certainly attacked by her own side for that. I, on the other hand, Andrew, I've been open about my criticism of Donald Trump about the fact that I have never voted for him, will never vote for him. Uh, and I have never, I've never once felt attacked or ostracized for that position, period. Now you might say, here's a counterpoint, you know, look at David French, look at know, Adam Kinzinger, Liz Cheney, et cetera. Look how, how much they've come under fire from fellow Republicans, fellow people on the right. And I think that's true, but in their case, they've also gone out of their way to attack people on the right, sort of make them feel less than an attack their dignity, launch ad hominem attacks. I mean, like Adam Kinzinger on Twitter these days is just like, dude, you are a congressman. Do not be slinging these barbs. This is outrageous. Um, and so, and so, I think that's 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 part of that's part of the reason that they that they receive the ire. But for my part, despite being a vocal Trump critic and having nothing good to say about the man ever. Uh, and firmly saying, I will never vote for him. Uh, I have not been ostracized by my fellow friends on the right. They look at me and say, okay, like that's your prerogative. Okay. You vote for who you want to vote for. And, and that's fine. I don't think that's the case on the left. And certainly based on Kat's experience, it, it hasn't been so. Yeah, I agree. Anything else we should mention about this piece? I do encourage people to read it. It's called again, why I keep getting mistaken for a conservative. It's a national review. And again, I hope, I hope Kat keeps writing for national review because I love reading her stuff, but I will include a link to this in the show notes. Did we miss anything here, Andrew? No, I think we got it all. I think um, it, I would second what you said. It, people really ought to go and read it. It's very, very, very readable and kind of very human. I, I really enjoy that kind of, it's almost like a testimony. I like that. Yeah, it is uh, a, a personal, uh, yeah, personal testimony. That's a good way of <laughs> describing it. Um, cool. Well, as we sit here, I mean, this is, this is maybe one of the most sort of nakedly political discussions that we have done yet, Francis. Uh, Sorry, my son's making noise in this out of the door. Uh, one of the most political discussions we've done yet, Andrew. Um, and uh, sorry, lots of noise outside my door here. Um, but we're sitting here. We've got one week. We're recording this on Tuesday the 1st. We've got one week until the election. So uh, by the time we record next week, we'll probably have a lot to talk about. And yeah, um, yeah. Uh, prayers for uh, the United States as she heads to the polls. As you and, can see, um, I voted I would, already. I would, I would love to. Yeah, I see the sticker. Very nice. Yeah. I would love to see us, you know, a week hence, uh, positioning ourselves together as a country just to be a bit more forgiving towards one another. But there was a piece I read today called, um, no, actually, that, that's a lie. I skimmed the piece and it was yesterday, but it was called, I think we need a pandemic amnesty. And it was written by yeah. Emily Oster. You see this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw that Written too. by Emily Oster in the uh, pages of the Atlantic and uh and emily has been a she's i think professor at brown and she as i understand her her background i think she was actually a fairly fairly vocal critic of our keep children out of schools policies so she's been sort of on on um she's been 
I think if from a reasonable has a, has had a reasonable vantage point on this issue, but recognizes that there were people who maybe didn't have the full information they needed, et cetera. And so she's saying we need to forgive each other for the foolish mistakes that we made during the era of the pandemic. That's fine as far as it goes. And those are Christian, you know, the Christian principle of forgiveness obviously should be front and center uh, of us all the time, Andrew. But, but uh, there's a difference between forgiving and repeating the same mistakes or letting the same people who made those mistakes remain in position to make those mistakes. So I'm all in favor of forgiveness and saying, hey, we made mistakes during COVID. Let's forgive one another. All in favor of that. I am not in favor of um, not having accountability for elected leaders or unelected leaders who put us in those positions and made those disastrous decisions. Uh, you know, with elderly loved ones dying alone because you couldn't go visit them in their nursing home or in their hospital, with children kept out of school uh, facing, as the New York Times now recognizes, over two years of learning loss because of the pandemic and because of teachers, teachers' unions, especially the AFT led by Randy Weingarten, who was so opposed to any measure that would allow children to return to schools. So those types of things are just disastrous decisions that we should hold people accountable for. That doesn't mean that we can't forgive them. Uh, you know, you can forgive, uh, you can forgive um, someone while you know, giving them a consequence for their actions. And that's exactly what should happen in this case. And the consequence should obviously include due process and it should be, it should follow the procedures that we have. It should be based on elections. It should be based on, uh, you know, administrative removal from positions of power, if that be uh, appropriate, et cetera. But there should be accountability for these things because they're disastrous. So, uh, yeah. it was just very rich irony because, um, Emily Oster tweeted her piece and said, this is a piece I wrote in the Atlantic and Randy Weingarten, the head of the American Teachers Federation, who's been in Ukraine, you know, assessing the situation with the uh, border strikes in Ukraine. Uh, she retweeted and said this, I agree with this. And of course you do, Randy, Naturally. because you're yeah. the one who made all the ridiculous decisions and you do not want to be held accountable for them. So yeah, uh, that's my, my brief, uh, my brief comment on that. But, uh, should we go to recommendations and or do you have anything? Yeah, to add just to really quick. There, yeah. There's an article in the American Conservative today or yesterday by Sora Bamari um, kind of disagreeing with uh, with Oster's oh. um, idea that we ought to have an amnesty. Um, so I, which I thought was pretty good. I look, I, I had I didn't read it super closely, but I thought he made some uh, some pretty good points in there. So that might be something worth looking at. Yeah, I will read it. I will say one word of caution. I mean, I haven't read it, so I'm not saying this applies to this article. And you've, you said you at least read part of it, Andrew. Mm -hmm. I worry that people like Sarabamari, in fact, Sarabamari himself sometimes, uh, border on the sort of trolling and vindictive side of things. And I don't think that that's ever where we should find ourselves on yeah. policy debates. So uh, in advocating for accountability, I really want to emphasize these should be, this should be due process accountability. I'm not looking for woke, you know, unwoke Twitter mobs to go cancel people and make them uh, feel like terrible human beings. I want, yeah. you know, people like Randy Weingarten elected out of their leadership positions. I want people like Anthony Fauci removed from his leadership position by by the administrative powers that be. Uh, I don't want, you know, more beyond that. I don't want these people shunned from polite society, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yeah. I'm not about being vindictive. I just want a good, well-functioning government that promotes human flourishing um, and makes good decisions, you know, yeah. and I don't think that's too much to ask for. I totally agree. Just and just really quickly, I think Sorab's main concern is the media kind of forgiving itself um, yeah, oh. <laughs> and and not in a sense correcting the record, which yes. is something that is. I think that is a strong point. You know, it, yeah. we don't we don't want a memory hole. You know, two years of um, sometimes very, you know, bizarre if not cruel kind of you know 
reporting, yes. frankly, of people yes. whose opinions weren't exactly in line with what was the received position that day. And something that Sorab talks about is one of the biggest one of the biggest issues is it was people who sort of said things too early that got like got you know pushed out. Um, yes. And then like things get reconsidered and then, and then they never go back and say, actually, you know, we, we canceled this person who said the exact same thing that we're now, we're now saying is probably a better way to look at the situation. Right. And so I agree with Sorb in that, in that respect, like correcting the record is an important thing to do. Well, like the, uh, the lab leak theory, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, there's this, yeah. I mean, late 2020, if you were pushing the lab leak theory, you were a conspiracy theorist. Um, Tom Cotton was one of these yeah, know, very prominent figures early on. Yeah, yeah, he talked yeah, about who was who was saying, "Hey, look, I I'm I'm on these Senate committees. I have access to info that you don't. Uh, I think this was a lab leak, and I think we need to talk about this." And the New York Times and NPR and the Atlantic, you know, wow, Tom Cotton, the conspiracy theorist, what a crazy guy. This is the Republican Party. This is today's right. Look at all these fringe lunatics out here. Uh, there's a in the last week and a half a Vanity Fair slash ProPublica piece. They teamed up and this, did this very deep dive investigation uh, that is entirely comprehensive. Again, ProPublica and Vanity Fair; these are not right right wing publications whatsoever. And they say, "Oh boy, yeah, it was probably a lab leak." So yeah. that's also a, 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 a thing that you should look into. But I mean, yeah, you're right, Andrew. The media ridiculed these people uh, like this for so long. And it looked like they were right. It looks like they were right all along. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think we definitely need to have an, a, a reckoning there as well. And, and some self-reflection, some serious self-reflection from our various figures in the media. Cool. Well, let's move on to, to um, recommendations. I actually, I will give you a different recommendation today. I mentioned uh, Rushmore, but um, I've got one more. But Andrew, why don't you first talk about yours and then I will circle back with mine. Okay, mine, Zach, is by our mutual friend, Casey Chalk. Thank you for connecting me to him. Um, I uh, enjoy his writing and I'm enjoying getting to know him as a person. And he wrote an article yesterday in the American Conservative called Depraved Activism. The European climate activists are committing more than mere vandalism. And he critiques uh, some of what we're seeing, the kind of horrifying images coming from Europe of people throwing soup or super gluing themselves to, you know, um, multi-million dollar um, masterpieces. And I'll just share one little line that he, that he says in his piece. He says, they think that by attempting to deface art, they are helping set things right. But in reality, they are doing exactly the opposite. By repudiating one of those things that makes us most human and thus most capable of virtuous acts towards others and the natural order, they vitiate their own argument. I think he, he just makes a great case for yeah. um, why defacing art is kind of exactly the opposite thing you should do if you're trying to um, advocate for uh, a change in the way we think of the earth and how we treat it and each other. It's a great point. It also, uh, it, it's one of those like fundamentally incoherent acts that just makes you ignore the person who is throwing the tantrum. It, it's, yeah. it's like parenting when, uh, when you, you, know, you, you say to your son or daughter, it's time to go to bed. You're tired. And they proceed to just start having a meltdown and yeah. crying and yelling and yeah. kicking and screaming and saying, I'm not tired. And like, yeah. this, no, you're like, you are like you, this is why you're going to bed. Yeah. Uh, and it, I mean, it's, and the, these acts are juvenile and that's, and that's fine as far as it goes, except, I mean, if their juvenile delinquency destroys something that can't be replaced, a beautiful piece of, um, you know, and I don't know. I mean, you know, a beautiful piece of art, then that's just, just such a shame. 
Um, well, yeah, I definitely will look forward to linking that to our users. Send me that link and I'll include it in the show notes here. Do. My recommendation, in addition to watching Rushmore, uh, comes from the London Review of Books. It's a short-ish article about hummingbirds. Uh, and it's written incredibly well. Uh, but also a reminder of the beauty of the world around us. So let me just read a brief excerpt of this uh, little sort of tribute to hummingbirds here. Uh, you'll learn a ton in reading this, I guarantee you. It's amazing. Uh, this is written, by the way, by Catherine Rundell, who's quite a, quite a nature writer. And she says this. There, the hummingbird's Lilliputian beauty is enough to stir the most stolid queen, but the hummingbird is far more fine than human eyes can see. Hummingbirds are the smallest living bird. The most miniature of these miniatures, the male bee hummingbird, weighs less than two grams, about as much as half a teaspoonful of sugar. Hatched after 18 days of incubation from an egg the size of a chickpea, his wings grow to barely three centimeters across. He is blue in body, with the gorget, that's the feathers at the throat, that turns red during the mating season. His plumage is iridescent, changing color and changing light. Many of the 361 known species of hummingbird have a similar iridescence. Among them, the male red-tailed comet with its long forked golden red tail and the wine-throated hummingbird with its hot pink bib, the hind feathers of which flare outwards from the neck like a cravat. They are a shining race and they see one another more vividly than we do. The majority of birds have cones in their retina that allow them to perceive a spectrum of ultraviolet colors invisible to us. Hummingbirds see an ultraviolet yellow, for instance, which is as different from the yellow we see as green is from blue. A study from Yale earlier this year reported that the diversity of bird visible colors in hummingbird, plumage, in hummingbird plumages exceeds the known diversity of colors found in the plumages of all other bird species combined. There is no bird species in the world more colorful. Wow. That's amazing. I love, cool. I love these, uh, these deep dives into nature. Where you just, you, 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 you peel an onion and it just becomes more and more incredible the deeper you go. And that's kind of cool. how this, this uh, article is on hummingbirds. So I highly recommend this. I will include this in the show notes as well. And you can enjoy that uh, sometime this week. Great. All right. That's all we've got for this week's What a Week. Thanks so much for joining us once again for another episode. Would love your feedback, so send me a note. Zach, Z-A-C at creedlepodcast.com. We'll be back next week to talk about all sorts of things. If you have suggestions for a close read, maybe you read something that you want us to talk about, uh, we're always looking for good recommendations and good things to read. So send those recommendations to me. Once again, Zach, Z-A-C at creedlepodcast.com. And until next time, God bless you.